From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Father's Day's here. I was about nine or ten, and my parents were splitting up. And we lived in a very small rural town in North Dakota. And my dad, he left, and he left the house, and he got an apartment in the city. Um, and he's a farmer. To go and see him somewhere where there was no lawn or pets or field or trees, it was just, that in itself was strange, plus the fact that he was there alone. The first time Leah and her sister and brother saw their dad's apartment after the parents separated, they were uncomfortable. The whole separation made them uncomfortable. They hadn't seen him in weeks. And then there was the apartment itself. We went up the stairs and it was like a three-flat behind the grocery store, across from the library. You know, we had that apartment smell of, like, cabbage in the hallway. And then we went in, and um, it was like a living room, and then a kitchen, and then a bathroom. And I remember I was like, well, wait, where's the bedroom? And he's like, that's the great part. You know, this is the cool part. See those doors? Go open the doors. And I went over to open the doors, and there's this, like, metal frame. And that's the bed. And it's called a Murphy bed. I'd never seen one before. He said, you pull it down and pull it down. And I pulled it down and it made this really awful noise, kind of creaked, like, like it was needed to be oiled. And I hated seeing it. It was like a lumpy mattress and like there was a thin blanket on it. And it just didn't look like it was very good quality or comfortable. And we would sit on it sometimes to watch TV. And I remember just thinking, this is so weird to sit on a bed and watch TV. It it seemed really pathetic and lonely, and it's lonely and depressing anyway because you know your parents are splitting up, but then to see where your dad is living and it's not nice. And it was so incongruous with who who I knew him to be. I mean, he's someone who belongs outside, working outside, animals, pets, agriculture, all that, and here he is in this apartment. I even hated the word apartment for a while. I remember, like, seeing it in books or, I don't know, reading it somewhere in the newspaper and being like, oh, apartment. My dad lives in an apartment. I was really bothered by that. Was that the first time you saw him so vulnerable? Yeah. I mean, he'd always been... My horse used to get out, escape, and, like, run down the road for, like, miles, and I wouldn't know what to do. And my dad would just calmly get in the car and go drive and find him in the bean field and lead him back to the... I mean, he was my... Who, who else could do that, you know? But here he is in this apartment, and he, he seemed kind of cowed by it. They were, The walls closed in on him, kind of. So I saw him as just being kind of helpless. As the years went on, did he resume his full size, or did he stay more like the picture that you had in that apartment? No. That image was kind of shattered. Like it never regained, he never regained the stature, he never regained the stature that he had before that moment, and before that, that, was that year that he lived there. Leah was nine. She says if her parents hadn't split up, she probably would have had two or three more years where she would have kept her dad on that pedestal before adolescence would have hit and he would have come down to size anyway. You know, your father gets knocked off the pedestal and that would have happened if they'd gotten divorced or not. 
but it did kind of, it was more jarring the way that it happened. Do you regret that, that you lost those, those years of um, idealizing him, or do you think in the end it doesn't really matter? Hmm. I think it matters. I think that it really, it was so painful. And we were so young and just like, you don't need that. You need, yeah, you, it did make a difference. You need a few more years. You need, you need to have it come to you on your own terms. I don't think that it's good when it happens in a way that you don't control. And the way that it came about for me wasn't really natural. It was very shocking. It was like one day he was there and two weeks later he definitely was not there. Here's the story of everyone and their dad. Once, dad was on a pedestal. Then, we got older, and he came off the pedestal. And with some dads, that happens more or less gracefully. With others, it is a quick, painful crash from which none of the participants ever recovers fully. And how a father manages that descent from power, that transition to being human-sized with his children, man, that is a test. That is really a test, and a lot of really decent guys have a hard time with it. Today on our radio program, we bring you three stories of fathers handling their falls off the pedestal as best they can. Like one of our show, Driving the Divorce Mobile. What happens if your dad goes from hero to tooling around in a Corvette and honking at girls in one month? Act two, and if that diamond ring don't shine... Ian Brown explains the lengths of a normal dad will go through to try to do right by his daughter on her birthday and how this innocent wish led him and his wife to the most corrupt and most questionable birthday stunt they or any of their friends had ever heard of. Act 3. Legend of a bank robber's son. What if your dad was never on a pedestal to start with and yet you find yourself still somehow imitating him? Answers. Stay with us. Act 1. Driving the Divorce Mobile. Kids whose parents divorce, like Leah, are often forced to see their parents as human-sized all of a sudden, way before they want to. And if there is a separate culture in this country of divorced kids, this story is at the heart of its oral tradition. This story is swapped like trading cards. This story of parents and how they acted in those first few months after they split up. Those first few months when they were perfectly flawed human beings. And to start our show today, we've collected a few about fathers right after the divorce. Our dad would take my brother and I out on Sundays, like every Sunday. And this one time he took us out and he wouldn't tell us where we were going until we pulled up to this uh, shopping mall that had this uh, fair going on. And so I just remember, I mean, seeing all the rides and you hear the music of the fair, we're so excited and... He, uh, he went to the ticket booth and he bought a big wad of tickets and like we just knew this was going to be like a great day. And the first ride we went on was this uh, airplane ride where you could uh, you go around in a circle in an airplane and you could go up and down and you had a gun, you could fire the gun, it would make this noise. And I remember like every time we would circle, our dad was watching us as we'd circle around and every time we'd go around, uh, we'd pull the stick shift so we would rise up just as we passed our dad, you know, kind of to show off in front of him. And um, my dad would wave to us as we would go by. It was, it was like, it was a really nice moment. And then 
uh, I think probably like on the third or fourth time around, we noticed he started talking to this guy beside him. And we were like wondering, like, who's that guy that dad's talking to? And and then like the next time around, like there was like closer together and we were like wondering, who is this guy? What's going on? And then the next time around, the next thing we know it, like this guy's got my dad like kind of like in a headlock or he's just got my dad's shirt pulled up over his back and he's like like wrestling him and, and trying to punch him. And like my brother and I are in shock. And uh, so we, we kept going around and like instead of like pulling on the stick shift, like we were just frozen now, like we were constantly in the air circling around and by now a whole crowd had gathered and you're like kind of egging everyone on like hit him hit him and i guess the one image that stays in my mind is is um seeing my dad's exposed pale white back um because his shirt was up around his shoulders and finally when the ride had ended we, we jumped out of the plane and ran over to my dad and by then, I think like, like the, the crowd had separated the, the two of them, and I remember this lady coming up to my dad saying, "Oh, you should have punched him. You should have hit him in the face." And my dad was like, "Oh, you kids want to go on some more rides, you know?" And he would like took us over to this other ride and says, "Oh, here, take some tickets." And like we were just like, "Oh, no, let's. I want to go home now," and just kind of put a, a damper on the day. From what my dad was telling us, like he said, "Oh, I think that guy was drunk or something." He thought I was calling him names uh, while we were on the ride and uh, he tried to like like I guess have like a, a moral lesson out of it like once we got back in the car and he was saying you know like fighting's not the answer kind of thing you know you always count to ten but I think like by the time you get to eight your shirt's already off your back what are you gonna do you know when I think of my father pre-divorce I think of a very kind of dry, retiring, very British kind of man. Everything he did was very measured, uh, very calm. You know, he was, we're talking about a guy who made Muzak uh, his kind of personal soundtrack. He found this radio station out of Vermont that played Muzak all day and he kind of wandered around humming. And so I'd hear him wandering around the house. But once uh, my parents got divorced, he joined the Y, he started working out religiously. And, uh, you know, suddenly he was saying incredibly bizarre things like, you know, I'm going to the gym and I'm going to wail on my pecs. When he was first divorced, uh, he didn't really have a place to live. Um, it was kind of a hasty divorce. And uh, so he was having us live in his office. And um, we just visited him on the weekends. And his office consisted of this sort of psychedelic blue couch and of course the shaggy rug um, and uh, unfortunately no bathroom so he would actually get me to go to the bathroom with him on the roof into a coke bottle and uh, somehow he made this fun to go out onto the roof and you know practice my aim and uh, it, was, it actually became like a fun thing to do that I actually look forward to during the day, and I have to really give him credit for that. You know, he was always insisting on, on showing me this non-existent muscle growth. I'd be sitting watching TV, and I could hear him thundering down the stairs, and, Jamie! Sure enough, I'd go out, and there at the bottom of the stairs, he'd be naked, flexing like this divorcee, pumping iron Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, He'd want me to, like, grab his biceps to see how they were growing. It was just absolutely horrible. 
I moved in with him um, when I was about 10 years old. Um, I wasn't used to certain habits of his, and one of them was where he would sit uh, in the living room with a hairdryer on his head, um, completely naked. And, uh, you know, it's, it's surreal enough to see your father under a hairdryer. I mean, I'm talking like the old ones from the 50s. And uh, I remember bringing over this friend of mine, uh, and we walk in, and my dad's completely naked. And, um, you know, we're, we're, then we decide to just leave. And as we're leaving, um, my dad says, well, you guys going to go out and boogie tonight? And, you know, he's still in this kind of single, he sort of thought I was a single guy, too, you know. And, of course, he started dating. Uh, and he'd tell me about these women, uh, and he always insisted on calling them Madame. There was Madame Farago and Madame Hardaway and uh, Madame Wilson, and we never met any of these women, so they're like these phantom Madames that I presume existed, but it was difficult because you're embarrassed of your father anyways. They're embarrassing. It's your dad. And then here he is gunning the Corvette at a light you know, to impress a girl. And there you are, 10 years old, you know, in this uh, popsicle-colored green Corvette that's rusted and has a hole in the floor. We talked to a half-dozen dads about all this, and we discovered that for the most part, they did not have specific memories of moments when they realized that their kids were seeing them differently. Maybe the kids noticed because for a child, any kind of change from what they're used to is huge. Or maybe it's just that the dads, understandably, wanted to believe that they were not diminished in their children's eyes and didn't let themselves notice a change. Occasionally, a dad told us a story like this one. I call the boys every day and uh, talk about whatever, how their day was. And one day I was on the phone with my eight-year-old Alex. So we were having a conversation and there was a lull in the conversation and then I sighed. I just went, ah, like that. And then he just asked me, lonely? And I I almost started to cry. It was, I was so taken aback by his perception, you know. And and I was honest. I said, yeah, when you guys aren't around, I'm, I'm lonely. But even in this case... This dad didn't really think that his kids saw him that differently since the divorce, since seeing him so vulnerable, since seeing him cry. One dad who did notice a change in his kid was Brian Masters in Wichita. Since he and his wife split up eight months ago, his young son started looking out for him, taking care of him, in ways he never had before the divorce. Probably the first thing that he started doing was helping me clean up, you know, grabbing the Swiffer and going and doing the hardwood floors, you know, and, uh, um sweeping the porch and um, uh, going around and opening up windows to kind of freshen the place up and you know just sort of some some of the kinds of things that you don't think of a kid even having on their radar screen what else what else would he do to try to you know be, be the responsible one around the house um he uh kind of runs through this little checklist on our way out the door do you have your cell phone did you turn off the oven uh, is the back door locked? You know, little litany of things that he knows I'm gonna going to be worried about later. He's nine. Uh, ten. He's ten. Yeah. Wow, that is so parental, isn't it? Oh, I know. Uh, 
I, uh, I would love it if that only made me happy. The fact is, it also makes me a little bit sad. Because? Well, because no kid should be in that position. You know, kids should get to be kids. Has Marshall tried to fix you up? <laughs> Not in the specific, but uh, especially in the early going, Marshall would uh, uh, say we'd be sitting in a coffee shop and he'd be doing his homework and I'd be reading a magazine and he'd look across the room and kind of nudge me and say, you know, she's really pretty. I bet she's a good cook. Yeah. Uh, I love how the second sentence after she's really pretty is she's a good cook. Yeah, she's probably, I, I bet she's a good cook. Did you have to learn uh, new things to cook after after uh, your wife left? I had to remember to cook, you know, which was the hardest part in the, in the darkest days, uh, was just remembering that, you know, kids need to be fed just darn near every day. Uh, for things to go well. Yeah. And, and occasionally, you know, he would, about, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock at night, he'd very casually say, hey, you know, you know what would be neat? You know, dinner. See, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, it's really hard for, for the child, for their parent to be prematurely taken from them as the super person, you know? Right. Um, but how hard is that for the dad? Oh, it's a it's a terrible experience. I mean, talk about a talk about a failure. Uh, and it was important to me to to be able to you know legitimately reclaim some of that ground, uh, not just to appear to, but to to actually reclaim some of that ground. Did you did you consciously try to reclaim it? Absolutely, sure. You know, those weren't proud moments in my life to realize that my kid had begun to look out for me, that my kid had had begun to become aware of the chinks in my armor. What are you doing this Father's Day? Uh, well, I won't be doing anything with Marshall. Sunday is not one of the days that I get to, that I get to spend with him, hmm. unless we make some kind of a special arrangement to do so, and we, and we haven't just yet. So I would suspect that Sunday will be, uh, will be a little poignant. Because you'll be alone. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if uh, Marshall figures this out and steps in. I'm hopeful that he will. And on another level, I'm kind of hopeful that the whole thing slides past him and that it isn't a concern for him. That would, that would be strangely comforting to me. Why? Explain that. why that would be a, a sign that things were, were maybe healthier. Um... You know, it would be uh, if that were to happen. It would be an indication that he's less aware of my loneliness and less aware of my frailty, and a little less, uh, you know, concerned about me. Yeah, that'd be a great problem to have. You know, be a great way to be alone on Sunday. Thanks to all the kids and dads who talked to us. He isn't much in the eyes of the world He'll never make history No, he isn't much in the eyes of the world But he is the world to me My 
Back to And If That Diamond Ring Don't Shine. There are moments when a dad is tested, and on this Father's Day, let us examine one of them, a daughter's birthday. Ian Brown is a writer and a radio host for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He has this story about what it means to be a dad who is merely human-sized. He recorded this at a This American Life show that we did in front of live audiences in Boston, Chicago, and Los Angeles. No one arrives fashionably late for a seven-year-old's birthday party. (laughs) That offends rule one of parental life. Never waste free babysitting. (laughs) But all seven guests at my daughter Haley's seventh birthday party were dropped off by their parents mysteriously seven minutes early. That sort of behavior is just plain rude. It was like being swarmed by a gang from Planet Tiny. They dropped their coats in the hall and immediately scattered to the farthest corners of the house like some new, instantly contagious form of biological weapon. I staggered upstairs with a small mountain of coats in my arms which is not a chore I saw myself performing back when I was young and longing to be grown up. Even when I was 11, I wanted to be married because married people I knew had sex every night of their lives. (laughs) But that's another story. I was lugging coats. Back downstairs, Trish... The mother of Katie, Haley's best friend, two best friends ago. Trish shot me a knowing look. Magician, right? How can you tell, I said. Fiber optic wands by the forks. And that was the first hint that my wife and I might have gone slightly over the top birthday-wise. That we might have stepped over the strict moral boundary that separates caring thoughtful parents who who believe in personal attention and quality time from cheeseballs like us (laughs) who try to buy their way into their children's hearts. (laughs) It's easy to commit that social gaffe these days. My wife and I both work. The harder we work, the guiltier we feel, the more we want Haley's birthday parties to be, well, visible from outer space would be gratifying. (laughs) We'd been planning Haley's seventh birthday, or to be slightly more accurate, my wife Johanna had been planning it and I'd been doing nothing. (laughs) For weeks. What there was was a cake, iced by professionals, in the shape of a magician's top hat, which cost 30 bucks. Eight loot bags filled with thoughtful, age-appropriate, peanut-free party favors <laughs> at $15 a bag. And of course, the magician himself at $150 for two hours. He called himself the Amazing Robert. <laughs> I, I don't think he meant that ironically. Now, I like to do something special on Haley's birthday. 
Still, don't you think, I said to my wife as she frantically tried to find a magician who wasn't booked three months in advance, don't you think we might be over-amping? But honey, if we don't go slightly crazy, Johanna said, quite logically, some other parent will. Then what's Haley going to think? And anyway, do you have a better idea? And I did not have a better idea. My sole contribution to the magician party had been to suggest that we include a whoopee cushion in every loot bag. Or, or at least it was my idea to blow them up. and put them in the loot bags, pre-inflated. <laughs> in the old days, when Haley was small, we kept her birthday simple. I learned that lesson when I lived in Los Angeles, near Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills, parents liked their children's birthday parties to have a theme, and a fairly significant theme at that. Manifest destiny, say, or... <laughs> or a NASA moonshot. In L.A., I never went to a birthday party that featured anything less than pony rides. And one mother actually gave out Gucci t-shirts in the loot bags. And it was hard to compete with that. In an act of defiance, a friend of ours, a struggling writer, staged her daughter's birthday in a park, of all places. The kids had a good enough time. They ran around and swung on swings and played tag and generally reveled in a whole two hours when they weren't under the watchful eye of a nanny or armed response security. <laughs> the grab bags contained what grab bags are supposed to contain, candy rather than Rolex watches. <laughs> Afterwards, the Beverly Hills parents flocked, I mean literally flocked round our friend. Fabulous idea, they said. Nature, who would have thought? Can I steal a theme? But our friend Catherine is the queen of the less is more easy on mummy birthday party. She says children want strong experiences, not new ones. Which is why last weekend, for her daughter Mary's seventh birthday, Catherine invited seven, six girls over to string gummy bears onto extra-long bamboo satay skewers. That was the theme of the party. Skewering candies on a stick. <laughs> there was some risk of eye injury, and the entire gimmick seemed to have Freudian undertones. <laughs> the little girls kept saying, I'm going to stick this skewer up Gummy's tiny butt. <laughs> and giggling hysterically. But all in all, it was a winner. <laughs> Only one girl barfed. The entire party cost 15 bucks. Canadian. <laughs> it is true that Catherine had a piñata. Piñatas are excellent because they entail hitting an object violently with a stick. <laughs> but those were the old pre-Bacchanalian birthdays. By the time Haley turned five, the year of our most corrupt and therefore most successful birthday, we'd gone as low as a parent can go. We'd hired human Barbie. For $300, human Barbie dressed up in full-size versions of Barbie doll outfits and came to your house. 
Human Barbie arrived in a Dodge Grand Caravan with Human Midge, her assistant. <laughs> two giant mobile racks of party dresses for the girls, a tea set and a case, and two chests of makeup. She dressed the kids, discussed the possibility of multiple careers, and fed them cake. All our friends were completely horrified. I might as well have said, oh, this year, Haley's having a crack party. <laughs> We're having a cake made of crack, too. <laughs> my Canadian friends put this crassness down to the fact that Johanna, my wife, is an American. <laughs> But successful? Wow. It was as if the Dalai Lama had made a stop at our house. The girls were hypnotized with awe. They spent most of the afternoon standing in a circle, brushing human Barbie's hair. I had the feeling that secretly, quite a few mums wouldn't have minded giving it a try themselves. As it turned out, I needn't have worried about the amazing Robert, the magician, either. He was a, a handsome guy with sideburns and a, and a wry, if somewhat resigned, manner. He knew what he was doing, though. He, he started cracking jokes uh, uh, with the kids right away. You must be Haley, he said to one of the boys as he walked through the door. No, Peter said, I'm a boy, and clapped his hands. Hey, the magician said, no clapping. So all the kids clapped. I said, no clapping. By the time he started pulling eggs out of their noses, you know, they were goners. <laughs> and I chose that moment to run upstairs. And I find I need a moment alone at regular intervals at these kitty birthday bashes, also at adult parties. In fact, I could use a, a moment alone right about now. <laughs> But when I open the door to my bedroom, what do I find? Lying, lying on my bed, surrounded by entire mountain ranges of miniature winter coats, two of my adult guests holding hands. Their spouses were downstairs. I must say, they played it cool. A headache, the woman said, you know, rubbing her temples, not that I asked. Yeah, I said, these kids' parties can be brutal. I tell you, I left fast. I didn't want to ask. I certainly didn't want to know. And downstairs, the amazing Robert was making cards disappear and reappear. But Trish, Katie's mum, she kept staring at the magician. I thought she disapproved of his tricks, but then she gave a little shriek. I know, she said. I knew, I knew that magician. He has just come through a terrible divorce from a birthday clown. <laughs> Which pretty much says it all, doesn't it? It's terrible getting older, the disappointments and the letdowns. But no child believes that. They want to get older. I mean, if you're seven, you can't wait to be nine. I mean, nine, that is going to be the greatest. Because they think life just gets better and better and better the older you get. And we grown-ups, we know better. Or we think we do. Or at least we need to think we do. But I didn't have much time for such maudlin thoughts, and frankly, convoluted ones, because a new sound was, was wafting in from the living room. 
a sound it is, frankly, impossible to be maudlin about. They'd found the loot bags. <laughs> Crass? Sure. Cheesy? Absolutely. Grown up? Not at all. That's what I liked about it. Thank you. Ian Brown is the author of Man, Medium, Rare, and Freewheeling, and the host of a radio program called Talking Books on the CBC. Coming up, more parental nudity. Very, very brief. Very, very harmless parental nudity. Which is, frankly, the only way I can take it. I don't know about you. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, for Father's Day, stories about dads who have been removed from the pedestal of paternal grandeur, dads who are entirely human scale. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act 3, Legend of a Bank Robber's Son. Nick Flynn's father deserted the family not long after Nick was born. Nick did not know him at all. His father was a check forger and a bank robber, and for a brief period in the 70s, served some time for it. Nick's mother, poetically enough, worked for a bank, and at one point, after they split up, saw the dad on a wanted poster. She brought it home and showed his brother, saying, that's your dad. Eventually, under rather odd circumstances, Nick and his father met and started to get to know each other. Nick Flynn tells the story. At a certain point, I, I think I'd already you know, heard about my father being in prison and I knew that he was a, you know, an alcoholic and, you know, I had, I was probably 15 or so and, uh, you know, I was actually drinking pretty heavily then also and doing drugs. And, uh, you know, my mother got concerned about it. She sort of like, you know, I, I think she was afraid that I would, you know, that I was just going to be like him. Um, and it probably, you know, it was probably very difficult for her to have me in the house. You know, she'd sort of, you know, made a choice to, to leave a relationship like that, and now here I was, sort of becoming that person. We're, I remember we, we were sitting in the living room of our house, and 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 she, you know, you know, I'd probably come home, you know, one more night, like you know, completely shattered, and uh, and you know, it was, I think I believe it was the next morning, like woke up, and she was just like, you know, this is, you know, this is this isn't good, and uh, so she, you know, she sat me down and said, what, what I plan to do with my life. You know, at 15, I had I had no idea, and and you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Uh, my mother worked two or three jobs, and 
uh, it, things were things were tight, and uh, um, I told her I planned to go into crime. Um, it seemed like a reasonable thing to think of doing. Like you know, that would be a way to get a lot of money fast. You know, that was the career path I was considering. But when I told her that, she she began to cry. I could see tears well up in her eyes. I tried to sort of backpedal and explain that uh, I'd do sort of white-collar victimless crime. And then she just left the room. She just walked out of the room. I'd seen him, you know, until I was uh, 16. I think I'd seen him like just two or three times. I actually remember looking for him. I remember thinking I would see him places because he had friends in Situate in my hometown. But by that point, my mother had a warrant on him for, you know, non-payment of child support. And then when I was 16 was when my mother first showed me a, a letter that he sent. And uh, there, there's a lot of letters. I spent I spent a couple weeks a couple years ago going through all the letters he had sent me, pulling them together. And uh, the first letter that I have is from uh, 1976, and I, it, I just have written it's postmarked June 25th, signed Dad, and he regrets for forgetting the date of my birthday. And then one of the lines in it is, "Tell me about, tell me of yourself. I miss you both, and soon, very soon, I shall be known." Um, you know that soon, very soon, I shall be known. He, he, you know, one of the things about my father is that he, he identifies himself as a writer, as a poet. He has a a sense of grandiosity about himself and what he's, his achievements, um, you know, his place in the world. Um, often what he would do is he would take a letter from someone else and Xerox it and then send it on to someone else. Like, he, he has a correspondence with uh, Ted Kennedy. Um, he writes to him all the time, and, and, you know, being a senator, the senator, I think, just has someone who answers the letters for him. It'll often be that. Often he'll he'll just sort of write something... Maybe a, maybe a couple words, and then there'd be maybe a Xerox letter from Ted Kennedy. Um, well, I, I have one here. I mean, I just got one. Actually, the most recent, I just got one a couple days ago. Letter from Ted Kennedy. Um, the, the print is actually sort of falling apart because it's been Xerox so many times. Um, uh, dear, Mr. Fl- <laughs> dear Mr. Flynn, thank you for your recent correspondence advising me of your further views on critical issues facing us in Congress. Um goes on. Thank you again for writing. These are some lines from a letter that I, I received from my father in 1995. We must have one love, one great love in our life. We are a nation of grunters. I fully intend to control Senator Kennedy's re-election. He shall win, and I shall be named the head of the American Arts Council. It shall happen. I do hope you both are well and are in some solid pursuits of solid goals in life. In another letter from 1989, uh, I, sh- I shall be able to do for America now what Mr. Solzhenitsyn has done for Russia. My works are waiting. It shall be soon. Um, and uh, this is from 1987. Writers, especially poets, are particularly prone to madness. Whether you like it or not, you are me. You know the Beano tells me you are into drugs. If so, good luck. By the early 80s, he had been 
you know, I knew he was out of jail. I knew he was out of out of federal prison, um, and I knew he was driving a cab, I think, a taxi in Boston. You know, I, I, I knew something about him, but I hadn't seen him probably for 10, 12 years. Um, and th- we, we finally did um, see each other. He had my, he got my phone number. And uh, at some point, I, I believe it was in 1987, um, he called me up and said he was getting evicted from the uh, the rooming house he was in. Uh, and he wanted me to come over and to, to, you know, he knew I had a pickup truck somehow, and he wanted me to come over and to move all his stuff out of... Uh, out of the house and out of his apartment. Um, this might have been the first time I ever talked to him. <laughs> um, you know, because I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I don't think I talked to him. And then I'd gotten these letters from him, which I hadn't answered. Uh, you know, he was he was pretty drunk when he called, and uh, he he said that he was sitting behind his his door with a shotgun, waiting for the knob to turn. He was just gonna like, you know, he wasn't gonna let him take his stuff, and he wasn't gonna leave, and that I should get over there. And, um, so I actually brought a couple other friends and just for witnesses. And so we got over there, we got there and he was, it it was sort of an, it was sort of an, uh, amazing scene. He was, he, I got to, I knocked on his door and he said to come in and I I went in and he was sitting in a tin tub naked in the middle of his room, having a bath and drinking vodka out of a silver chalice. And, uh, (laughs) You know, I'd never seen him before, and then he stood up naked in front of me, covered with water, and I was just—it <laughs> was—it was—it was shocking. It was a shocking scene. My friends and I stayed with him for maybe half an hour, and I ended up giving him some money to put his stuff in storage to, call, you know, hire a truck and to get a storage unit. I gave him a few hundred dollars and. Uh, and then we left and then he, you know, moved his stuff out and, and, uh, and then the next time I saw him was maybe a couple months later, uh, it was getting warmer. I remember it was sort of a warm day, like maybe, uh, April or something. And, uh, I was riding my bike along the Charles River and he was sleeping on a bench on the, uh, Esplanade, um, by the Charles River. And I just sort of, you know, I realized that he was like, you know, at this point he was homeless. At that point, in 1987, I had been working uh, with the homeless um, at a homeless shelter in Boston for three years. I'd, I'd been there for three years um, as a caseworker, and I, I sort of had a sick feeling in my stomach that he would show up at, at the shelter where I worked. And uh, <laughs> after this, seeing him on the uh, on the bench, probably within a month, he ended up at the shelter. Um, one day in the afternoon, he walked into the shelter and he announced loudly to everyone that his son worked there and that he needed a bed and that, uh, you know, and demanded a bed. And then I came on for my shift later that, that day and a, the supervisor took me aside and asked me and, and told me what had happened and asked me, he said that someone had come looking for a bed today that they claimed to be my father. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was shocked. It was sort of, you know, it was a secret. I didn't want people to know this. I'd probably tell people that he'd been in prison uh, that he was a writer, um, you know, that he was a failed writer. And, and all of that, and all those things seemed actually sort of, uh, you know, it just seemed to add sort of a mystique. You know, it wasn't, uh, it's something you could just relate like a good story. Uh, but then, you know, then when he becomes homeless, it suddenly, it, it goes up to another level. 
and I felt riddled with, sh- riddled with shame that this man was my father, which was um, which was confusing for me because I, I had worked with the homeless for three years and I had a lot of compassion for homeless people. But when it happened to someone in my family, it happened to my father, I felt utter shame uh, that people would look at me and judge me in a certain way, whether that I was going to end up like him, that I was sort of crazy like him, or that why couldn't I help him? Why couldn't I do something? You know, what I was his family. Why Why wasn't I, you know, I lived in a place. Why, why didn't he live in my place? But then, you know, <laughs> I did not want him to be, uh, you know, I had, I had the sense that he had, you know, he hadn't really given me much in my life. And now he's going to come and take away, like, a job I had in some way. That he would come to my job and just sort of f*** that up. You know, I wished he would go anywhere but where I worked. did all right for a while like he would actually he, he got a job he was sort of a model homeless person he, he you know had a day job at a, at a labor pool uh he would have a bed held for him by someone else i didn't have a lot of interaction with him uh i remember him being in in the lobby of the shelter and him coming in at night and you know i would, I would have you know radar for when he came in i would know when he was there i would look over and see him go and get his bed ticket for the night maybe i probably wouldn't say anything to him um and then I'd just sort of see him, and I'd judge, like, you know, whether he seemed drunk or not, um, you know, whether he seemed like it was just going to be a, a smooth transition from, you know, from the day into the night, um, or if it wasn't, or if there was going to be a scene. Uh, and um, there were a few times I remember, like, meeting him actually after work, like at, at dawn when he was on his way to uh, the labor pools to do work, and uh, walking with him and talking, actually, like, outside the shelter, like, walking along and trying to figure out what... Um, you know, what was going on with him. Um, and uh, I went back to the shelter recently, this past winter for the first time, um, and, uh, you know, talked to a lot of people who, and asked them, you know, what, what, what they were thinking of this, you know, what, how we interacted, you know, how, what I, what I seemed like, what they thought. And most people said that they were just utterly confused, that they had no idea really what to, um, how to treat me, how to treat him. Um, and it seemed, to them that I didn't want to talk about it, that it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't really give them uh, a way into a conversation about this. It seemed like I, you know, I, I was just sort of maybe too freaked out and I couldn't, I, I didn't know what to say. Uh, so I, I really don't know what I was feeling. I think I, I think I was feeling awful um, and I was feeling confused and, um, and it seemed like, it seemed like a nightmare to me, actually. That time when my father showed up in 1987 in the shelter, um, you know, I, I was I was you know actively drinking and, and using drugs, um, and uh, I, you know, from what I remember, my drug increase probably my drug intake, I imagine increased. Uh, I'd had uh, totaled three vehicles, you know, all of them I'd been you know drinking or doing drugs while I was driving. Uh, you know, at one point I, I had a motorcycle accident while I was, you know, drunk. You know, it's not a good idea to ride a motorcycle when you're drunk. And uh, ended up in the hospital, you know, lost my spleen. Um, but, you know, I would, I would drink and, and, and smoke marijuana and, and uh, you know, pretty much daily. You know, I was sort of fitting a profile of, of, you know, someone who was, 
you know, on the way to some kind of ruin or something. I looked at my father, and he was 30 years older than me, and, you know, he was, he identified himself as a writer, I identified myself as a writer. Uh, he, you know, he didn't take it seriously, he didn't take his situation seriously, and maybe I didn't either at that point. Somehow I was able to gain perspective by looking in, at him, which, and I'm not sure why I couldn't gain perspective by looking at all the other homeless guys that were there, and drinking, and, and, and you know, sort of nose diving. Um, but somehow looking at him, and, and, and feeling like, Okay, this is even though I don't know this him as a father, there's some connection between us. And if I keep going like I'm going, I'm going to end up like him, and that, you know, it terrified me. And after he'd been there for 2 years, I ended up getting into therapy and 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 getting sober and uh you know, and I, I think it it actually has a lot to do with that, with uh with seeing my father and seeing, you know, what could happen to someone's life. You know, I I sort of had to see something that extreme, I think to realize what a potential fate that I could, you know, end up in. You know, he had it together enough to realize that when he turned 60, he was eligible for senior housing. Uh, and when he turned 60, he actually um, got an apartment. In, in you know section uh, subsidized housing section eight housing, and uh, I, I began filming him probably five years after that, like in middle ni- middle of uh, the nineties. As I had learned in the ninety days I'd been there, what would happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd have looked like Toulouse with truck. They'd have shot the bug off at the knees, mm-hmm. not not even higher. Real the proposal was that I was going to um, seek out and interview uh, the men that had known my mother, um, the men that had you know had been in my mother's life for a year or for five years or for, you know, however long. And so the first time I really went to look for my father was with a video camera, and I, I interviewed him. Like, I would, every time I'd go to him for, like, the next three or four years, I'd bring a camera with me, and just his story sort of kept coming. Leavenworth, Lewisburg, Atlanta, Marion, Illinois, which was built to replace Alcatraz. I mean, I, I was there, and I had the pleasure, I mean, that pleasure of speaking as a Saul's and Ason, I mean, I wanted to know what the fuck I was writing about. I was thinking, Jesus, Saul Zanese is going to jump with envy when he sees this fucking story. This is, well, he and Dostoevsky both wrote about their adventures in Russian prisons. Yeah. Heavily. All, all he and, wanted uh, to do was to um, give me his uh, three-step plan for how to rob a bank, uh, which, which seemed to be his, his version of fatherly advice. We had we'd never spoken before, and this was the first real conversation we had, was he laid out his, uh, his, his method of robbing banks to me. Three steps in the whole program. Step one, open an account. Open an account. It involved, he sort of kept forgetting the steps also. It involved getting someone to steal some checks uh, from an insurance company and then to forge those checks, uh, make a whole series of forged checks, then to open bank accounts, dummy bank accounts around the country. And it, it was sort of elaborate, elaborate and, and and convoluted and, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, a failed enterprise. Step one, I was given like a hundred dollar bills, right, by Dippy Doo Doyle. Driven to the bank by suitcase fiddler. Uh, go in with my story. 
Always a female teller. Also, sir. Always go to a young female teller. A guy is no good. They're generally homosexuals. When I first met up with him, and I, he, we went to a soup kitchen where he ate, and I, I videotaped him there, and he introduced me to, his, to the other people he ate with, the other people in the, in the soup kitchen, uh, who had known him for years, because he goes to the soup kitchen several times a week. This is your son? This is my son, Nicholas. Okay, well, how do you do? Good. Hello. This is a good I friend thought, of mine. I'm not I, kidding you. I yeah. thought you were just somebody he picked up on the way, <laughs> making the documentary. He, he, I can't believe a handsome kid like you belongs to him. It was the mother. The mother was beautiful. I was lucky. He was very proud that, you know, this, this is my son, and no one really believed that he had a son. And I, I said, yeah, I was his son. And, uh, and, I, and he told, he, he bragged to people that I, I was working at Columbia University. Yeah. What's your name? Your name is Walter. Walter. Nice to meet you, Walter. Columbia University. My kid. Imagine that. Right? Yeah. Writing. That's a miracle. You're right. Well, again, his mother had brains. I got to get another car. How old are you, anyway? Uh, I'm 35. Are you that old? Yeah, 35, yeah. When's the last time I saw you? Four years ago. Mm -hmm. How the hell did you go to that NYU Google school? What the hell? I don't, see, I don't know what all promoted you. How'd you, how'd you go there? What did you make? You majored in writing? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Struggling. Well, he knows how successful this father is. Right. A lot of times I'm very frustrated when I go and, and meet with him because it seems like he, he tells the same stories over and over again and they, they, they seem very disconnected to reality. But those few times where, where I have felt some connection, uh, it does seem that he's just let his guard down a little bit and let, let me sort of glimpse at, at, at his struggle in some way and at his, uh, what, what, you know, what connects us. He actually wrote me a letter right after... Um, uh, he sent me a couple letters after my book of poems came out. Uh, the first one, uh, it says, just says, Dear Nick, your book is a classic. Love your father. That, that was a, that's a unique letter. <laughs> because the classic has only been a word that he's ever reserved for his own work. Uh, and so for him to sort of apply that to my, it's just sort of him turning, even if just for a second, and sort of looking at me and saying something about what I've done. I mean, there has to be a reason that I've, I've held on to his letters for all these years. There has to be some sort of reason, something I've, I've sort of been waiting for or looking for or hoping for. And, yeah, something like this is, is sort of maybe as close as I'll get to it. You know, I would like to have sort of <laughs> one of those like sort of deep connecting moments with him, but I'm not really sure if I've achieved that yet. You know, and I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm actually not even sure if, if at this point I, I would hope for it or, or, you know, maybe, you know, sure, maybe you always hope for it. You just sort of deny that hope or something. But uh, I, I don't know if I even hope for it at this point. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost enough just to like sort of to sit in front of him, to go to his room and sit, sit with him for an hour and just see, see where he is and for him and tell him whatever. I'll tell him one thing about myself. And if he hears it, that's great. If he doesn't hear it, that's fine. You know, I, I don't expect him to give me anything at this point. It's almost enough just to go and see him. It somehow calms me enough or, or settles my soul enough just to go and have some relationship at all with him. You know, it's just sort of down to sort of a real basic, like really, uh, really like stripped down to like the most basic 
father there can be. Like there's, he just, he just is my father. And there's nothing I can do about that. There's nothing he can do about that. I go and I sit and I have a relationship with this person who is my father. Nick Flynn's book of poems is called Some Ether. He's working on a book in which his dad figures prominently. Well, the program was produced today by Wendy Dora and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jonathan Goldstein, and Starley Kine. Senior producer, Julie Snyder. Contributing editors, Paul Toff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockin, Rebecca Carroll, Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consigliere Sarah Val. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Paul McCarthy. Musical help from Mr. John Connors. Special thanks today to KMUW in Wichita, to Julie Kane, to Tony Sarabia, to James, Jod, and Carrie. If you'd like to buy a cassette copy of this program... A little late for Father's Day, but still, you can own it. Call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or visit our website, where you can also listen to our programs for free, absolutely free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Albert A. List Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I tell you, the staff of the show just keeps complaining about Tori lately. They run into him in the restroom, and I don't get what is going on with him these days. He'd be naked, flexing like this divorcee, pumping iron Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. He'd want me to, like, grab his biceps to see how they were growing. It was just absolutely horrible. Show you how smart I am. Wanna show you how smart I am. Winner never wins. Winner never quits. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Maybe you. Don't know how to walk, baby. Maybe you can't talk none either. Maybe you never will, baby. But I'll always love you. I'll always love you. R.I. Public Radio International.